Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to this week's episode of Mill Liberty. We are here with Jack Hunter. He is the editor of uh, Rare Politics, and he'll be joining us for, for our February exclusive. Jack, welcome. Good to be with you, Caleb. It's our second time trying this one, That's but right. <laughs> we'll try yeah, to get it right the first time. Always to talk about. Right. Okay. Um, so, Jack, I want to uh, start off talking a little bit about politics. Uh, we're kind of living in a new age of media, and you know, you of course working at at Rare uh, is you're on the forefront of that. How does Rare fit into that, and and how do we see this new age of media in the age of Trump with um, alternative facts and fake news and all that kind of stuff? Well, Rare is purely a fake news site. We don't do any <laughs> of course, legitimate news, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, boy, there's so many different ways to hit that question. You know, people talk about fake news and alternative facts. Let's establish first what people originally meant by fake news. It mm-hmm. was blatantly. Uh, fake stories, sort of onion-style stories, if you will, that mostly some foreign websites and foreign entrepreneurs were making money off of that they knew people back in the States would react to during the election. Obviously, false stories. But then fake news became, well, I don't like this story because I support Trump, or I don't like this story because I support Hillary Clinton, and that was the new fake news to a lot of people. Well, that's not fake news necessarily. It could be, but usually it's just I don't agree with that opinion. Uh, where does Rare fit into this in the new media age? Well, what we are, uh, let me just explain a little bit where I think Rare fits into the uh, sort of right spectrum, if you will. Um, I thought even when I used to work for Rand Paul that there was an emerging movement. Obviously, we have the liberty movement that started in 2007 with Ron Paul. But there was an emerging liberty movement within the Republican Party, also this, the, the same thing, that didn't really have a journalistic outlet that represented it in the way that I thought it should be. So, you know, if you're a, a Ted Cruz or a Marco Rubio, you have National Review. If you're a Marco Rubio or Tom Cotton, you have... Uh, Weekly Standard and the Free Beacon, sort of neoconservatives. And, you know, our good friends at Reason are are, a libertarian outlet, but a lot of times they don't care to cater to Republicans or conservatives. So I wanted something that would bridge the gap, a libertarian-leaning conservative outlet, and that's what I tried to do. Very conservatarian. Sure, sure. Um, You know, I always describe libertarianism as taking the best parts of left and right and getting rid of the worst parts of left and right. (laughs) That's sort of what our brand is. That was true with Ron Paul. And that's true if you're a left-leaning libertarian or a right-leaning libertarian. That's sort of where those coalitions are built and where everything overlaps. I tried to do that at Rare. And in the era of fake news, you know, we did a bunch of stories that could be perceived as anti-Trump and some that could be perceived as pro-Trump. You know, I like that he's picked McMulvaney as his budget director. I agree. Yeah. I, I, I don't like the travel ban, for example. <laughs> so, you know, there's good and bad. Um, being a libertarian outlet, I think we're sort of hard to pigeonhole. You know, we're going to be for this guy and some of his policies and against this guy and some of his policies. And hopefully we fit into that and people are reading it. It's rare.us if you're listening. <laughs> so... That being said, what what are some of your initial thoughts? Like you said, uh, Mick Mulvaney is a fantastic pick, but also there have been some troubling aspects with the Trump administration now that we are officially one month into it. Um, what are your initial thoughts and how are things going and how do you think things will go in the near future? Well, first of all, Trump is not only the most unique candidate, now president, in modern American politics, he's probably the most unpredictable. There are no parameters or guidelines to what we're seeing right now. He's not a creature of the establishment, far from it, Um, and he's not that ideological. Um, You know, he has authoritarian leanings that worry me, but him not being ideological, he's he's open to all sorts of unconventional things that 
a more conventional Republican or Democrat would not be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been saying to my libertarian friends and anybody else who will listen that since the election, with the entire Republican group that ran this year in 2016 for president, outside of President Rand Paul, that this is the best next one we could hope to have. And some people freak out, like, what do you mean? Well, you know, I do think if Hillary Clinton were president, it would be a pretty neoconservative administration. There would be some things we'd like, but that would be bad. I think if Jeb Bush or certainly Marco Rubio had won, uh, we might be in a new war right now that we can't even imagine. And Trump might do this as well. My biggest fear with Trump is that when there's a terrorist attack or something like that, since he does have sort of an authoritarian mindset, and he's not a statesman in the sense that he doesn't keep a cool head, which you want, I'm afraid he will do something extreme, whether that's domestically, by infringing upon our civil rights or starting a war needlessly somewhere. Some of the good things, I mentioned Mick Mulvaney earlier. If, if Romney had won, he would not have appointed Mick Mulvaney. Mick Mulvaney is a serious fiscal hog. The reason John McCain voted against him is because he wants to cut Pentagon spending as well. Yeah. And we know that's a sacred cow with Republicans, but Mick Mulvaney's always been big on that. That's great. Um, another thing I don't think a lot of people have mentioned, Trump has signaled recently that he wants to loosen FDA regulation. So a lot of us libertarians who look at the Food and Drug Administration and see terminally Ill, Ill patients and people who are sick who can't get alternative medicine medicines that have been proven to work in Europe and other places because of the FDA's sort of crappy approval process. Trump is looking at that and saying, why are they so slow? Maybe these people should have that medicine. My former boss, Rand Paul, and some libertarians in, in, on the House side have introduced legislation to do that. Maybe it'll see the light of day this time. And that's just, that's just one thing. I think there's all sorts of things. I'm worried about Trump with mass surveillance, but I like the fact that you know Rex Tillerson is the Secretary of State who, when asked by Marco Rubio during his confirmation hearings, would not outright call Vladimir Putin a war criminal. Why is that important? It's not because Putin isn't a war criminal. He absolutely is. It's because a secretary of state is, should not be eager to make those sort of charges that will lead us to war. And Marco Rubio wanted him to say that because he wants to take us to war. So that's another thing. We could go back and forth. We could probably talk for three hours about all the positive and negative aspects of Trump. If that answered your original question, I hope so. Yeah, so I, I want to uh, dig a little bit um, into one specific area, um, particularly in the media. Do you think that Trump is at all a little bit dangerous as a president for, for, for press, or do you think that it's it's a lot of hype and it's, it's uh, well, sensationalism? Here, here's the thing, and you know, people want to pick a side and say, oh, the press is awful and Trump is sticking it to them, or oh... You know, Trump is the worst thing ever, and he's a threat to free speech. I think the truth is usually somewhere in the middle. Right. The press, there is obvious bias that's clearer to see now than it ever has been. Now that this guy's actually won, the guy they said that wouldn't win, and I didn't think would win. I thought Hillary was going to win. A yeah, election. a lot of us didn't. Right. Think. Like, I didn't think. Yeah. That's just not a DC bubble thing. That's right. a lot of people. <laughs> right. It's definitely that. Right. But at the same time, you know, Donald Trump being unconventional, and I think being coarse and and boorish in many and unpresidential, mm-hmm. um, that concerns me too. You know, he would make comments during the campaign about that were anti-free speech and penalizing or punishing journalists. Opening up libel laws and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a little concerning. But, well, is that just rhetoric or does does he do something about it? I don't know. That's what I was saying at the beginning of this interview. We don't know. But if to the degree that he does, yeah, we're going to have to fight like hell and protect our constitutional rights. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's the flip side of this. Uh, You know, Barack Obama deported more people than any president in history. Do you remember when Barack Obama said, well, I'm not going to talk to Fox News. They can't write on Air Force One because it's not real news. Nobody freaked out because it was Barack Obama. Yeah, yeah. And it was Fox News, yeah. So could you imagine Donald Trump saying right now, well, um, Wall Street Journal or New York Times. CNN. Which he kind of has. 
there's a different reaction to that because it's Donald Trump, and they say, oh, well, this guy's the next Hitler, and look what he's doing. It's just the mm-hmm. start of it. That even when Barack Obama did similar things, like saying he wouldn't talk to Fox News and sort of not letting them have a seat at the table at press conferences, people forgave it. So you have to look at that, too. It's a lot to take in. I caution everybody, the truth is somewhere in the middle, and most we're going to be in the middle a lot if you're trying to get to the meat of what's good and bad, right and wrong about the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. Is it better, in, in regards to the media, is it better to be um, unbiased or truthful? Well, you, you hopefully even when you're biased, you're trying to be truthful, uh-huh. because otherwise you're just a hack. But I will say this. I would love to go back to the days 150 years ago when you had the Tory and Whig newspapers and you exactly <laughs> where people were coming from explicitly, because I think even those who try to be objective, and that's a laudable goal, we still kind of know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I talk, a good friend of mine back home, a musician friend who's very progressive and very liberal, one, one day was telling me, he's like, well, Fox News is right-wing trash. I'm like, well, I don't disagree. You know, there's a lot of bias there. He goes, <laughs> he goes, I watch just regular news like MSNBC. I'm like, oh, wow. I'm like well, yeah. that's just regular the mirror news. image of Fox. Yeah. He's like, no, that's, that's regular news. Of course. And how many people that watch Fox News think like, oh, this is the regular news and you got these liberals that see it? And they're all full of it. Like, mm-hmm. they can't see, see the bias. So I, I kind of wish sometimes that Fox would say, hey, we're the right-wing channel, and we're Republican-friendly, and here we are, and MSNBC would be like, we're in the tank for Democrats. I even remember at the beginning of the Obama administration, do you remember what they had a slogan, come see what hope and change feels like? Or, yeah, it was it was something really like, something like creepy was, almost yeah. because it was like so embedded. It was in, almost the same them. as yeah. Obama's campaign slogan, and then they had Lean Forward, which is a little broader, but mm-hmm. still – um, even CNN, I think, has a slight tilt left. I will say this, that you know, in the 90s, people used to call CNN the Clinton News Network. Mm-hmm. And then Fox became a big thing, and that's obviously leans conservative. They're such a force and get so, such higher ratings that even the traditional liberal media that people used to talk about, like CNN and others, had to be a little bit more middle of the road and lean a little bit more right to compete in the market. Right. So I think they sort of self-corrected that. Long gone are the days where Walter Cronkite could get on the evening news or Dan Rather. There were no cable outlets and just sort of set the tone. You know, we're past that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and like I was at the at the museum the other day here in uh, Washington D.C. and of course their big thing is pre- preserving the First Amendment, preserving uh, freedom of press. And what struck me was that it, it's there is no such thing really as as unbiased. Everyone yeah. has a bias. Right. Even even supporting free speech, that's a bias. Or supporting free press. Sure. Uh, giving the the press the ability to to cover that accurately. Right. I would prefer to know at least where they're coming from. Um, not necessarily just reinforcing my opinions, but just at least know where they're coming from as opposed to someone pretending to be unbiased and going to them knowing that, hey, like, look, these guys clearly have no agenda whatsoever right. when everyone actually does. But if you can put aside that that bias for the truth, I think that's that's a true indicator of of good journalism. Not if they're unbiased or not. Sure. No, I I would agree with that. And the the goal should be the truth. We want to know what's actual. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, different people have different versions of the truth. What Kelly and Conway alternative facts and whatnot. But <laughs> we can go on with that forever. <laughs> um, so how do we how do we ensure that moving forward into the future? Um, as we both established already, that things are kind of uncertain. Mm-hmm. Certainly in the next four years, perhaps eight. Um, how do we ensure that the individual reigns supreme? I don't know that you can ensure it, but you can fight for it. And that's what we've been right. doing throughout the entire history of the liberty movement. Um, you know, 
as somebody who comes from the political end of this, I mean, I'm interested. I'm a libertarian. I'm interested in the political aspects of that. How do mm -hmm. we move the ball forward? How do we make the policy ideas? How do we implement them? How do we make them reality? Um, so when I see somebody like Rand Paul working with the administration on Obamacare replace and repeal, um, you know, different areas, and at the same time, you know, opposing a nominee or saying, you know, you, well, I'm going to have to stand up for the Bill of Rights here because you're wrong. I think that's the way to do it. I mean, he did the same thing with Barack Obama. The reason that Barack Obama and Attorney General Eric Holder took a, started talking about criminal justice reform more is because this Tea Party Republican guy was embarrassing him on what should be progressive Democratic issues. So, and then you work with the administration. At the same time, he fought the administration, the filibuster over John Brennan, for example. I think that's really all you can do, and obviously I'm coming from a political perspective on this. Liberty in a broader sense, moving forward, um, you know, we're a capitalist, people should start their own businesses, obviously there's all sorts of educational uh, opportunities out there. Uh, our friends at Young Americans for Liberty announced they have 900 chapters as, as of yeah. yesterday. Yeah, I saw that. It's funny, I wrote about that at Rare, and I went back to a Daily Caller piece I wrote in 2011, sort of announcing that they, they what was this, 286 chapters in 2011. And it was, it was and, a ginormous right. thing back then. And, and they were even the biggest uh, center-right, right-leaning, libertarian, conservative youth organization in the country uh -huh. at that time. And at that time, I was bragging about how much bigger they were from the Young Americans for Freedom, who had just kicked Ron Paul off their board for being anti-war. And there was sort of that stuff going on. But the reason I bring that up, we have a movement that has institutions, activists, leaders, uh, and that's whether activist leaders or people in Congress I just mentioned, they were weaponized. It's not ideal for us right now. Do we wish Rand Paul won the election? Yeah, I voted for Gary Johnson in the election. I didn't think he'd be president, but would that be better? Yeah, that would be, that would be good as well. Right. Uh, but we have Donald Trump as president, so we're going to try to have to choose our battles and try to do good where we can and fight like hell where we must, mm -hmm. if that answers your question. Yeah, so... Um well, so obviously, you know, Rand Paul is has been kind of not popular among a lot of libertarians as right. of as of late. Um, what, what, where, where do you stand on on that? Like, for example, with uh, the vote for Jeff Sessions right. or or some of the other things that he has he's done. Well, here's well, first of all, on the face of it, it's indefensible for vote for to vote for Jeff Sessions on just an issue like civil asset forfeiture. Right, especially uh, when whenever that was the kind of reason, the issue for uh, opposing Loretta Lynch. Right, that he didn't vote right. for her. And like I said, on the face of it, mm -hmm. and as I just said, somebody coming from politics, I'm interested in, in politically why people would do things sometimes on the face of it that might benefit what we care about. And his answer to that, and I, at first I was like, what the hell, what is this, yeah. uh, made total sense to me. You know, people ask me, well... Um, do you agree or disagree with Rand? The problem with that, you know, sort of knowing him personally and working with him, is that even when I, he does something that I think is confusing to our base, I 99% of the time I understand what he's doing. And whether that makes me look like a hack or whatever, it would be I would be just as much of a hack and lying if I said, oh, well, this is terrible, I don't know yeah. why he's doing it, when I do know why he's doing yeah. it. So to, to the Jeff Sessions thing, his answer was, well, I know this guy. He's been a colleague in the Senate. Anybody that Trump was going to nominate for this position was going to have this terrible position on civil asset forfeiture because Christie was in there. He's bad on that. Yeah. And others. And he goes, I don't know those guys. So I have two choices here. Vote against this guy for the reasons that should be obvious to everybody, pissing him off and pissing the president off, maybe endangering the Obamacare thing we're working on. But more importantly, and he said this, he goes, I want to change their minds on civil asset forfeiture. And is there any possibility that he can do that because he has a relationship with the president and Jeff Sessions? 
Possibly. Is it definitely going to happen? Maybe not. Most likely not. But is that better than somebody you don't know at all who has that position that won't talk to you? I compared this to what uh, Justin Amash said when Mike Pompeo was announced to head the CIA. He tweeted out that Mike Pompeo is a guy who wants to execute Edward Snowden, thinks the NSA mass surveillance we have right now, you know, whereas the Obama administration would say, oh, we're not really spying on you, Edward Snowden shows up. He's like, well, yeah. we kind of are, but I'm sorry. They at least had that attitude. Mike Pompeo's open. He's like, we're spying on everybody. We need to do it more. Yeah, so we even, want to. We want yeah, to. Yeah, we want to so double it, down on that. It's even worse. Thinks ex Snowden should be executed, has defended torture. He's a bad guy. Mm -hmm. And Justin Amash, who we all know is a great liberty hero, tweeted out, Mike Pompeo is a great choice. I'm not with him on every issue, but he'll be a strong leader. Now, why would Justin Amash do that? And he explained. He said, I know Mike Pompeo. He's not with us, but I think he's a man of integrity I could talk to and maybe change his mind. Now, to my libertarian friends, if you think Justin Amash is a horrible neocon and we should never <laughs> support him or listen to him because of that tweet and his support, obviously he can't, he's not in the Senate. He can't vote, but he would apparently. Of course. That's dumb. Like, that's just silly. That's throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and I would argue that the same is true of Rand Paul. I could line up a hundred things that Rand Paul's good on libertarian-wise, and libertarians would take two or three and say, well, that's the, 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 whole, the whole of it. And that's, yeah. I, I think that is not only illogical on the face of it, but it's handicapping if you're trying to be involved politically. Uh, nobody else really does that. Uh, no, you don't find people on the left doing that. I'm not saying they don't hold a Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren's feet to the fire, but... And you certainly don't see that with like, so, you know, Rick Santorum could go out there and talk about small government and then run for president, never do any of that stuff, and nobody notices. I think that's terrible, too. That's just rolling over for this guy that always lies to you. So that's the right. other extreme. Yeah. But we do put ourselves at a disadvantage. If here's a guy who's 95% liberty, and we hate this 5%, and he sucks, and we're just not going to get I think that's dumb. I don't think that makes any sense. Yeah, and I think libertarians tend to have... Uh, a bit of a problem in the, in that regards, and a lot of them just don't understand politics, right? And I yeah. can't blame them. Politics is ugly and dirty and muddy, and you know what? It's not going away. Yeah, so. yeah. the The system isn't necessarily going to change, at least not not the way that you can have an absolute purity in one right. ideology. And the question should always be: We're here because of principles, not politics. Mm -hmm. The reason we care about politics is principles. The question is: How do we stop the next war? How do we get rid of civil asset forfeiture? How do we end the drug war? And the answer is not always absolutely clear. The clear with the sessions, oh, we used to oppose this guy and on principle, and that's it. Well, maybe that's not the way you change the laws and civil asset forfeiture. You know, so, so they're they're complicated questions sometimes. So with the nomination of sessions, um, how how do you think that the Who's drug war first nominees? By the way. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. How do you think that the drug war um, will look in say four years? Um, because as, as somebody who did not vote for Trump, um, I saw that that was one area where I was like, you know, he might not be terrible on right. until until he, he said, like, look, let's nominate a session. We and don't know. And once, that was again, concerning. Th once again, this is where we want to have Republicans that we like and trust or should trust mm -hmm. have influence on the administration. So Donald Trump, within the course of the campaign, has said things like, we got to get tough on drugs and throw these people into it's like, all right, Richard Nixon from 30 years ago, that's a, <laughs> that's a stupid thing to do. Let's get past that. And then at the same time, he has said, well, let's let the states decide. And it's like, well, that contradicted what you said before. We know what Jeff Sessions thinks. He's horrible. He's yes. retrograde. Yeah. Um, so... Knowing that, do we want – there is a faction within the Republican Party, the Liberty faction. There's also other Republicans who are big on criminal justice reform and doing things to get rid of the drug war, maybe not as quickly as we like. Do we want Trump and even Jeff Sessions to listen to those people, or do we want them to listen to the Republicans who share those attitudes and will go in the opposite direction? Because it really is going to come down to influence. 
and applying that kind of pressure. To answer your question, we don't know what's going to happen, but we know politically what might be possible. So I say you maintain those relationships, and there's a line. You know, you can only go so far, but at the same time, when Jeff Sessions suggests to Trump something that we know is going to be terrible and draconian, what can we do to stop it? What can we do to change their minds? I mean, that's about the best you can do. Right, yeah. Um, so culturally speaking, uh, of course, like this this past weekend, we had International Students for Liberty Conference. Right. Um, and Great conference. And, One of my favorite of the year. That of, yeah, me, me too. And then... White, white supremacist uh, Richard Spencer came right. in and, and crashed the party. Um, and then at this conference, we had, we've had we had nothing but Milo news all throughout the week. Sure. Uh, where he was invited, then he wasn't invited. How is the alt-right affecting the Liberty message? Well, there's a couple answers to that. So... I don't think the alt. I think the alt right has tainted our movement a little bit, but mm-hmm. I think that's still a small minority of people. I think they're loud. We see a them very on loud Twitter, minority, on yeah. Facebook. They're loud, but um, you know, I would argue that you know the people who hate Rand Paul are there, but I would say that they're a minority too. If you mm-hmm. take the one in two million people who voted for Ron Paul and ask them how they feel about Rand Paul, that might be a broad definition of the liberty movement. A lot of people are probably going to like the guy. Yeah, that's ultimately you know if you're a politician, you want those votes. The alt-right is the antithesis of libertarianism. If we're individualist and we see the dignity and the humanity of the individual first, and we're about individual rights and the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and divided powers and smaller government, those guys are collectivists. And you know, however anti-feminist they are, or pro-masculinist, or whatever stupid crap they've invented this week to pretend their movement <laughs> is, they're at heart a white nationalist movement. Um, my beef with Milo Yiannopoulos, who I think is very smart and talented, right now you have people throwing him under the bus and saying he's stupid, yeah. is that he would go on college campuses and take these extreme social justice warriors who are out of control to task. The other side right, of the, 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 yeah. the opposite of Complete the opposite, right, idiot yeah. authoritarians on the other side. And he would make fun of them and poke fun of them and draw large crowds and love, people love that. And I love that because those people deserve it because they're idiots. But what he also did was say, hey, and he got more popular and his fame grew, well, check out this alt-right thing. The alt-right's great. It's edgy. It's cool. And he would even cite specifically in his 3,000-word piece at Breitbart about the alt-right sort of outlining the contours. Here's a guy like Richard Spencer, who he deemed an intellectual of the alt-right. He called him a renegade. I'd like to be called a renegade. Would you want to be called that? That's pretty cool, right? Yeah. So uh, there used to be a pro wrestler called the renegade. <laughs> I, you know, I, he, that's, a, that's a positive term. Right. <laughs> So he calls somebody like Richard Spencer that. You know, you have the Republican convention in Cleveland where Milo speaks and Richard Spencer speak at a conference together. He's asked by the New York Times, hey, are you worried about this white nationalist? And he says something like, I don't mind having smart and edgy people around me. I think they have interesting things to say. They to say. If you're a fan of Milo Yiannopoulos and he's like, this alt-right thing's kind of cool and Spencer guy's part of it, you're going to kind of go in that direction. Mm-hmm. And Caleb, tell me if you've seen this. I've seen some young libertarians who used to talk about ending the Fed and I, uh, other libertarian things start to yeah. capitalize the W in white. And, yeah. uh, you know, Milo's not a racist, and I don't think he is. I, I'm saying that. I yeah. don't think he is. And he doesn't promote the alt-right. But, Jack, here's why you should take race realism seriously. I'm like, well, you're actually proving my point right now, you little racist jerk. But, <laughs> but you see what I'm saying. Yeah. Now, that's a very small minority of people. I think most of the liberty movement, for, look at something like Gal, for example, you know, student activists. When I spoke at their national convention, a few walked up to me and were like, I'm concerned about this happening. But they, they too admitted that the three or 500 people or whatever, like, 
maybe seven of seven of them were like that. If you see what I'm saying, mm-hmm. and you saw them; they had on their red hats and oh yeah, you know yeah, they love yeah. Milo and you know Richard Spencer has some good points, you know that kind of crap. Yeah, and even after uh, even after Richard Spencer crashed ISFLC, um, immediately almost they they came out and said and just completely denounced him. Yeah, and, which and, they should have and done. banned the people yes. who. who uh, brought him there. Those people, because they have a an identity attachment to the libertarian movement, I'm talking about the young people sort of going in an alt right direction. Yeah. They're not going to be quick to give that up because nobody ever wants to say I've changed my mind. I've changed. Mm-hmm. They have tried to sort of shoehorn that alt right collectivist authoritarian crap into the liberty movement. It's not rational. Like anybody can see through it. They've moved on. Yeah. They've become something else. They're more concerned about race and the alt right and. That's what they are, and they can call themselves libertarians, but that's not what they are, and uh, I think they should be shunned. Uh, you know, some of my friends are like, we need to take these people intellectually head on. Um, you know, part of being a libertarian is we believe in free speech, but people also should be responsible for what they say, and I think that there should be limits. You know, I think Milo was right to get in trouble for saying things about underage sex, and like those are controversial topics. People should should sort of say, hey. This is a bridge too far. I'm sorry that somebody that thinks neo-Nazis have a point or that people who are not white or subhuman are people we should shun and not talk to. Um, if we reach a point in our society where that they become a big deal and we have to ch- challenge them intellectually instead of just obviously saying this is bad, maybe we should. But we're not even remotely close to that, even within the liberty movement. If five idiots show up at a bar with a bigger idiot and they think he's a cool guy and they have these racist thoughts, no, kick them out. Bye. Don't want to talk to you. And I think that's that should remain our stance on those sorts of things. Yeah, and like obviously we want to be big tent, but there comes a point where you also have to remember your principles as well. Right. Yeah. And, th- yeah. Th- look, we, we, nobody's more big tent than me. When I see left and right libertarians fighting over stupid stuff, or as I always say, when libertarians get bored, they invent new things that should be libertarian. Uh, a couple years ago, I was trying to fight and right. see who, who the biggest libertarian I'm the in the room libertarian is. Biggest libertarian on Facebook, and I'll, yeah. I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> but um, you know, a couple years ago, sort of left libertarians were more ascendant, and I was seeing friends of mine, people I res- like, like and respect, saying that you know being polyamorous and all this sex stuff, this was naturally libertarian. Hey, if you're listening, you're polyamorous, knock yourself out. I don't care, but let's not pretend that that's what the Ron Paul movement was, was centered on or yeah. libertarianism. And now you're saying that with the alt-right, like protecting Western culture and defending... No, that's that's not... In fact, that's an inflated version of all the ugly crap on the conservative side we've been trying to get away from. All the young Ron Paul kids would say, like, you know, I like border security too, but immigrants aren't the enemy. Ron Paul would say that. Yeah. You know, I want to stop crime too, but every, you know, 17-year-old who gets busted with pot is not a criminal and a thug, old white conservative. You know, that's sort of where we were coming from. So, um, I lost my train of thought there. What, what was I saying I was going to get back to a second ago? Um, oh, I remembered. Okay. So if I'm messing up your line of questioning here by rambling on to No, no, no. This is perfect. This is perfectly so, fine. what I was going to say, you know, purity tests and all this, there's a big difference between trying to be the biggest libertarian or the most pure libertarian, the biggest libertarian on Facebook, for example, yeah. and trying to make the country more libertarian. Not only are they different, I think, unfortunately, they contradict each other sometimes. Because naturally, if you want to convince people and bring them your way, you want to meet them where they are and talk to them about issues that they care about and sort of, you know, sort of I'm doing a fish, fishing line thing here, mm-hmm. sort of bring them in your direction to the issues we care about as libertarians. If you're trying to be the biggest libertarian, you're basically trying to prove to people you already agree with that you're the hardcore. Um, I don't know when I'm home for Thanksgiving or Christmas if, if my aunt or my cousin that 
you know, might watch CNN every once in a while, but doesn't know much about politics. If I bash them over the head with why the non-aggression principle is, you know, they won't know what I'm talking about. So when libertarians, and I love all you guys, and the, this movement will always be that way, when your goal is, hey, libertarian friends, look at me, I'm a badass, and Rand Paul sucks. I remember when people say Ron Paul sucks. I remember libertarians would say, well, he's a minarchist. He's not an anarchist. Yep. I'm like, get the hell out of my face. That's stupid. <laughs> Nobody would even care what you have to say if not for Ron Paul. Or, you know, or Justin Amash endorsed Ted Cruz. He's not a li All that crap. Um, you know, Jeffrey Tucker, said, who's my friend, said something I don't like. All that crap. If that's where your concern is, you're really marginalizing yourself. Ron Paul gave us a gift when he ran for president because more people know who we are, what we stand for, and what libertarian, libertarianism is before he ran for president. He kick-started a movement. Let's take advantage of it and try to be as big and big ten as possible. Not trying to go back to what it was before, which was ten guys in a telephone booth talking to each other about white papers. Um, I wasn't a libertarian before Ron Paul. Not that I disagreed entirely with those issues, but I looked at libertarians and was like, I don't take you guys seriously. Like, quit jerking around. Like, quit being stupid. Like, let's, let's do something. Mm -hmm. And when I saw Ron Paul get as popular as he became, it attracted me like, hey, this guy's effective. And then I actually philosophically became more libertarian uh, in the process. Um, so that's a good uh, transition point. Um, I want to talk to you about you personally and and how you've had a, a an evolution in your own ideology, mm -hmm. uh, and how you used to be a little bit more you know this edgy type where you know you just want to offend people just to offend people. Um, I was a little more Miloish. A little bit more Miloish <laughs> without the without the flamboyancy, right. you know, to that to that regard. Um, how did you uh, how and why did you change your ideology like for example on uh, things like the confederate flag or right. something like that um and and why can't other people do what you have done Ooh, there's a bunch of different ways to hit this anybody listening to this podcast right now can tell from my accent that i'm from brooklyn new york of course, yeah, <laughs> way up there, Boston. So I, yeah. you know, but that's part of your question. I'm from Charleston, South Carolina, the birthplace of the Confederacy. You know, secession, all that sort of stuff. And I grew up with. It, it's funny. My parents really don't care about all this stuff. This is something I got into later politically, but certainly culturally, uh, defending the Confederate flag. Coming from that, a lot of libertarians still do. It's just for states' rights and all that sort of stuff. Um, I was a conservative. Uh, pundit, a shock jock, if you will, at the same time. This was on rock radio before I started, uh, got into talk radio, where in between Stone Temple Pilot and Pearl Jam songs, I would do political commentary. This was starting about 1998, 1999. Did, did, I did that till about 2007, so almost a decade at that rock station. And many of you know I wore a Confederate flag pro wrestling mask. Are you talking about shticky? Uh, I had that going, and uh, my intro was from Ric Flair, like, woo, this is the Southern Avenger on 96 Wave, and then I would talk about whatever the political issue was of the day. What made me change and what made me embarrassed about a lot of that was, you know, when I got into talk radio in 2007, that's when the presidential, the 2008 presidential election started happening, and I got into Ron Paul, and I'd moved on from the mask and all that stuff, but I would still defend the Confederate flag and certainly uh, say other things um, on immigration. You know, I was certainly, hardcore yeah. restrictionist and all that kind of stuff, uh, like you're seeing now and apparently is popular. Um, but as Ron Paul became a thing, I started to become a thing. I was an anti-war conservative who didn't identify as libertarian, and when he ran, I said, that guy's a real conservative. Screw John McCain, screw Rudy Giuliani, Fred Thompson, all these other guys. Those guys are Bush-era neocons. This guy's a conservative. And me saying those things 
to most conservatives, like, this is weird, you know, because at that time, being a conservative meant being pro-Iraq war, defending the Patriot Act, defending torture, and here was this Republican saying, no, don't be any of those things. Which is ironic in, in the history of, of right. the GOP. Because and I knew that history. I, yeah. Because all throughout the history of, of the Republican Party, it's always been against the uh, Vietnam War yep. or against uh, World War One, World War Two, and all these sure. different things. And now for the first time, you know, it's flipped. But in that Bush era, people had forgotten. So when Ron Paul started to be a thing, there were only a few right-leaning pundits out there in talk radio and in print and elsewhere mm-hmm. Who you know, like your Rush Limbaugh's and Sean Hannity hated Ron Paul as much as the base did, or a lot of yep. the base. They're like, this guy's an interloper. Remember, he got disinvited from one of the debates because he talked about blowback to Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> so I was one of the few. I was like, Ron Paul's not only right, but he's a conservative, and the rest of you guys are phonies. Mm-hmm. Me being that guy sort of elevated me to a, a national status. That's when I ended up doing the, the book later with Rand Paul and sort of being on the Paul family's radar and doing work for them in various capacities. But also being around younger people, before being a conservative, I was around people a lot older than me and a lot of their ideas were older and I would today say more bigoted or more intolerant. Because right. not all of them are bigots and racists. I'm not throwing that word right. No, it was just the culture it's at the a, time. The culture is a different attitude. It was a completely it, different attitude. As it relates to something specific like the Confederate flag, the truth is long before Dylan Roof tragically murdered those people in my hometown of Charleston, South Carolina, I'd moved on. It's not yeah. something I talked about a lot. I'd written a piece or two at the American Conservative where I sort of talked about this a year, year, year and a half before that. Um, because people accuse me, they're like, you're just changing your mind now. I'm like, well, I wrote this a year and a half ago saying the same thing. It just wasn't in the news cycle. Mm-hmm. But when it was suggested that they take down the Confederate flag from the State House grounds, I was like, this is the time to say something. And it's not because I disagree with my friends back in South Carolina who don't have a racist bone in their bodies and see something honorable about that flag. That's something out people outside the South don't get. Other people see something racist in it, and that's why they like that flag. I'm not saying... But African Americans, that's 30% of my state in South Carolina, not only there, but across the country, that is a terrorist symbol to them. That same symbol that a white Southerner might see and be like, well, that was my great-great-great-granddaddy or uncle who fought for an honorable thing, and let's not talk about the slavery thing, let's just focus on his valiant fight. Well, you kind of have to talk about this other thing, because it was somebody else of a darker color than you's great-great-great-granddaddy who was lynched with that flag accompanying it, who marched in Selma with those flags everywhere, who, you know, the, the legacy of slavery, and you can't separate those. I'm always trying within the liberty movement to get people to talk to each other and to have mutual respect. Everybody, left, right, whether you're more philosophical or in radical, whether you're more pragmatic and political, like I tend to be, Let's all try to work together. Well, that should be true in the country. If you're black and white, let's talk to each other. And I'm sorry, the Confederate flag is a non-starter for a lot of people, and rightfully so. The idea that a white Southerner who respects that symbol should sit down a black person and say, let me explain to you why you're wrong about this. No. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. They're not wrong. That's a, horrible things happened to people who look like them and people related to them under that flag, and that's you can never go back on that. And... You know, recognizing that, I don't think I could have taken any other position other than what I did in saying take the take the flag down. Mm-hmm. And I, I stand by it today. I think it was the right thing to do. I think we'll be a better country if we could heal over, over that. And you know what? Maybe, maybe some black Americans, once you get past this, will, will be like, well, you know, uh, maybe we can talk about your ancestor in a, in a different way because we get past this symbol. Maybe not. Maybe that's being too optimistic. But, uh, you know, conservatives do this a lot, a lot of... Um, 
uh, black people, black Americans who've been involved in black nationalism and the Black Panthers, they say, well, look at all the horrible violence and stuff you preach. Well, there's historical reasons for that, too. Shouldn't we try to understand each other instead of constantly trying to tear each other down? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's like, for example, like Black Lives Matter, for example. Right, that's a good um, example. And that's, that's something that I just, I just don't think that either side understands the other side. Well, here's the thing. So, <laughs> I always compare it to the Tea Party. Mm-hmm. So, when the Tea Party was happening, you know, I wrote a book with Rand Paul. The Tea Party comes to Washington. It's part of why he got elected. It's why Justin Amash and Thomas Massey got elected. That sort of Tea Party power. Conservatives would get so mad when the left or the mainstream media would take the one crazy jerk at a Tea Party rally and say, like, that's the Tea Party. That idiot right there. Yep. And we'd all recognize that. Like, no, actually, they're pretty peaceful demonstrations. We're against the debt. I don't even think they left a lot of trash laying around after these rallies. Black Lives Matter is the same way. I can find you plenty of extremists involved with that movement who identify with that movement saying roast the pigs or kill whatever they say. Say extreme things. And I can find you a hundred more to that one person who may be politically activists, may not be, but are just mainstream black Americans who in Black Lives Matter here, our lives have mattered less up to this point. And police brutality is a big part of that. Our criminal justice system is a big part of that. And they want to talk about it. It's sort of a, a... a cry for help. And we do the same thing that the left used to do to the Tea Party, where here's this one crazy person, Sean Hannity tonight, Black Lives Matter terrorist group, let's fight on Mill Yiannopoulos, and he calls them, and that's not how you talk to each other. Black Lives Matter has a point. I've written about it repeatedly. And I never defend the actions of extremists. I think they're their own worst enemies sometimes, just like many in the Tea Party were. But I'm sorry, police brutality is a real thing, and white America has not seen it for a very long time. And for the first time in a long time, because of things like what happened in Baltimore with Freddie Gray and Ferguson and Eric Garner in New York, they feel like they have a platform and can speak out and sort of bring that issue to light. And who can blame them? Mm-hmm. And that that's a bit, like, it's a bit perplexing coming from... Uh, the right, who is seemingly small government, who you know, who would understand right. these things until you start talking about police, then it's all there. Every single one of them are holy and cannot do any right. harm. And then every single person who is involved in uh, these crimes obviously had it coming. Right? Why? Why? Why do we? Why do we disconnect our? Or train of logic whenever it comes because to that. Because people are comfortable with those contradictions and it drives us libertarians crazy. <laughs> and part of it too, you know, we know a lot of police officers or families. I always tell people who are critical of police policies and things like police brutality as I am, our enemy is still not the police. I think the left makes a mistake yeah. when, when they do that. Yeah. I mean, uh, there are a lot of police officers who feel the same way we do and see corruption and abuse and wish they could do something about it. Address the systemic problems. You remember, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head right now, when that terrorist shot police in Dallas mm-hmm. and shot them just because they were cops. You know, that I consider that terrorism. And the, we learned that the Dallas police were probably one of the leaders in trying to reform their department throughout the country. And that chief had butted heads with the law enforcement establishment there for trying to change things. That's a hero. Like yeah. that, that, we need to look at those guys. It's like, hey, more people should be like the Dallas police. Um, and that's how you get to a point where you understand each other and can talk to her, just like talk to each other. Like I was talking about Confederate flag or libertarians of disagreements. I mean, I think that's what we should be doing more of that instead of just being each other's throats. So, um, in in your journey, how how have you been influenced, and who has influenced you the most to align where you currently? sit today. There's no more important political figure in my personal life and career than Ron Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now, would not be married to my wife, I would not be speaking at the Young Americans for Liberty convention this 
whenever it happens in July. Uh, I would not be at the ISFLC conference, at least not at one where there's a thousand people instead of a hundred. Yeah. Um, there would not be a liberty movement. Rand Paul would not be a senator. Civil asset forfeiture would probably not be on anybody's radar on the right side of the aisle. Uh, the idea that you can be conservative and anti-war would still not probably be a thing. He is the most consequential libertarian for sure, I would say, of the 20th century. And people get mad and Mises and high. From a political standpoint, he is the most important libertarian of the 20th century. But Mises and Hayek wouldn't be, you know, household names. More if it wasn't people for know that, about right? them today and care about those ideas in a political sense than they did before Ron Paul ran for president and everything that he's left in his wake. Mm -hmm. And I think he was just an honest, principled man who ran for president and thought three people would vote for him, and he got surprised. I think Donald Trump might not be an honest or decent man who <laughs> ran for president. Didn't think he'd be president. He got surprised. So sometimes these things take on a life of their own. But I think what Ron Ron's accomplished, uh, his legacy is incomparable, certainly from a libertarian perspective. There's other people, I'd, I mean, you know, name some names during this podcast, you know, I'm friends with people associated with the Mises Institute, people at Cato, people at Reason, mm -hmm. people with Students for Liberty, obviously Young Americans for Liberty I consider a home base in many respects, um, you know, relationship with Rand, and I would call Justin Mosh and Thomas Massey friends and all these people, but I look at it as all part of the big thing that Ron Paul started, so I don't know how I could answer any more comprehensively than that right yeah what are what's what's some of the some i guess philosophies or books that you've read that that particularly stood out to you that really hit home to to change some of your old thinking into um, well, with that i don't that's that was today. more being around young people as far as like the idea that you could be for border security and not demonize immigrants or the idea that you know you could say islamic terrorism is a problem but that 99.9% .9 of Muslims are not that. Mm -hmm. I, that was more about being around young people who weren't constantly looking for somebody to demonize. Um, as far as books that changed my mind, I don't know if this is in the change my mind category, but the book that I would recommend to Tea Partiers when that was a big thing four or five years ago was Tom Wood's Meltdown. And the reason why, and I think Tom is one of the best sort of right-leaning libertarians as a spokesman in our movement. He just really knows how to relate to people. The reason why is if you care about Austrian economics, as most libertarians do and I believe in, that's a book that I could hand to the average Tea Party or talk radio fan, and they could kind of get Austrian economics in layman's terms. Uh, I th to me, that's more impressive than something that intellectually I might find fascinating or something. I know that's a weird way to answer that, mm -hmm. but it's a tool. It's a tool. The book that probably had more influence on me than anything was probably Cons Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind, which is a very old book published in the 50s. Yeah. And that's really where my conservative side comes from. He, he's, he would argue that conservatism is not an ideology but the rejection of ideology. It is about pragmatism and prescription and tradition and habit and custom sort of humanity. We're standing on the shoulders of giants that you know we in this time here cannot be as wise as humanity as a whole. I still sort of subscribe to that while applying liberty principles in my everyday life and pushing. Um, part of that is why I'm probably more interested in politics and the philosophy. There's so many people who are so much smarter and better at liberty philosophy than me that I let them do it. And tooting my own horn maybe here a little bit, I think so many of them are not very good at politics, so I focus on that. <laughs> I think there's a there's a need for that. And there's not a lot of people willing to right. do it. Everyone so. has their niche, and, right. and they and they just have to you know fill that out and and work on that to the best of their sure. ability. Sure. Well, the nicest thing that's ever been said to me is the first time that I met some of Rand's brothers and sisters mm -hmm. and like Ron's kids, mm -hmm. um, and Ronnie Paul, his wife Peggy, 
and Robert and some others, they said something to the effect of, you know, we love our dad, we're all libertarians, we believe in these things, but we like so much that you explain to the average person out there what he means or what he stands for. Right. And to this day, that's the nicest thing anybody has ever said because Ron's a hero. Right. I think that, and, I think that's that, yeah. that speaks that speaks a lot because um, a lot of people it, they need a bridge. Right. Right. You know, like I I was certainly uh, not on the the happening train as, right. <laughs> as happening dot jip. Um, I I certainly wasn't there, but. I, I needed the bridges to get there, yeah. and and that's and that's how I eventually became to where I'm hosting this podcast right, today. Right, right. Um, and I I think that uh, speaks to a lot of people because um, they need it broken down in terms that they can hear in their own political language. That's exactly right. Yeah. So and that's that's what I try to do every day. I could go through a list of books that I really like and had an influence on me, but. Um, I don't think they would beat some other people's list cause mm-hmm. who, who who concentrate more on philosophy, right? Yeah, you know the, the Prince Machiavelli. I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> which would be more interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, so. right, right. Um, so, what's 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 up next for for you and for Rare as as we move forward? Well, Rare, you know, I've been at Rare for three years. I've tried to create a libertarian conservative institution there, a journalistic one. Hopefully, some people are enjoying it. We've had some effect. I want to continue to grow that. Mm-hmm. You know, I am tethered to the liberty movement, not only personally, which I mentioned a little bit earlier, but certainly professionally. I'm in this for the long haul. We built something here, and I think we'll outlast Trump and whoever comes next. And hopefully, one of those people sits in the White House as a libertarian at some point. Still that not would be, possible. That would be fun, <laughs> right? So the, I think that's the fight of my life and many of our lives, and that's yeah. what I'm interested in. And you know, when fads pop up like the alt right or you know, I'm, you know, sex craze, porn libertarian or whatever. I'm not going to get distracted by that. Ron Paul brought us to the dance. It's those core libertarian issues that I'm dedicated to. And you know what? I might be an 80-year-old dude someday and all that's bypassed me and I'm too old to know the difference. Like, you know, <laughs> maybe other people. But, you know, that's that's where my heart's at. And so that's where my head's always probably going to be. And I enjoy it. I wake up every day excited to fight for those things. All right. That's great. Um, this is about all the time we have today. But uh, why don't you... Um let people know where they can find you, where your writings and your social media and all that. Oh, the website is rare.us, and you'll we're a broad interest site, sort of like BuzzFeed. You'll find mm-hmm. entertainment and pop culture and a lot of libertarian stuff, too. My Twitter handle is jackhunter74, and you can also find me on Facebook. All right. And I am Caleb Franz. You can find me on Twitter at, at Caleb Franz um, and find the show on Twitter at Mill Liberty. And then subscribe to us on iTunes so you'll never miss an episode and you, you can get fantastic interviews like we just had today with Jack here. Um, and we have a lot more coming up. And we, are of course, are going to be at CPAC this weekend. Jack will be on our uh, panel that we have. Yeah, we have a, a, a nice shiny banner here that, that we're looking at um, for the show. So if you're going to be at CPAC, please uh, come up and, and check us out. And until next time, we'll see you.